Uh, where is, uh, is Aaron here somewhere? Aaron Brooks? Where's she at? Yeah. Oh, there you are. Could you stand up for us? Uh, Aaron, yeah, go ahead. Aaron Brooks has spent the last uh, two months in Africa, and she just got back this last Saturday, so let's give it up for her. She's back safely. Next Wednesday, we'll be showing a video uh, celebrating her trip and kind of all the things that happened. Um, you guys ready to go tonight? Man, I'm excited. Uh, last night, I was uh, out barbecuing some bratwurst. Any bratwurst fans here? Yeah. Love bratwurst. Uh, I was out grilling bratwurst and uh, pork, uh, pork uh, hamburgers. They're, they're, they're both a part of my new diet. I actually think it's going to, I think my diet's going to catch on, right? I, like some of you guys have done the South Beach and the, you know, all carbs. Is that the same? I don't even know. Like, we got all kinds of diets. My diet's called this. If you can grill it, you can eat it. You know what I'm saying? Right? And we got any takers, right? And, and seriously, you can grill ice cream, right? Like some of you guys are thinking, well, that stinks. No, 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 no. Just throw it on there for a couple seconds. Get it nice and smoky, right? Throw some Oreos on top. It's money. Anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. Last night, I'm out grilling, and uh, kind of a weird weather night last night. You, you guys, yeah, for those of you who did, don't live in a cave, you would have noticed this. Uh, there, there was, like, chaos to the east of us, chaos to the north and the south. Of, like, if you looked on the radar, it was like, we're going to die tonight, you know? I mean, it, like, the whole thing was red. Like, Kent Earhart was like, everyone, just, just, go, just you're going to die. It's over, right? Tornadoes, everyone's done. St. Louis is going you know. And, uh, but, but it was crazy, because in St. Charles... There was, there was nothing, right? And it was about 8 o'clock I was grilling because it's really healthy to eat late at night, which I normally do. And it's also a part of my diet. If you can grill it, eat it. And if you can eat after 8, eat it. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm like, I should just be... T- yeah, anyway. Uh, so, but I walk outside and the sky was just orange. Where, did any of you guys see that last night? It was one of the craziest colors, like your eyes, it took a moment to adjust to. You know what I mean? So I'm grilling and all this chaos all around. And I walk up and it's like, this is unbelievable. Like the sky is just a color that's, that I've never seen before. It's like everything was happening around, but in, in the very Mecca of St. It was like God was protecting St. Charles, you know? In the Mecca of St. Charles, there was this weird, different perspective, you know? It's like all these things happening around, but here there was this new perspective, this new light. Tonight, we're going to be wrestling with one of the most misquoted mistreated, mispronounced, mistextualized, and contextualized, and a bunch of other words that sound smart. We're going to be dealing with a passage tonight that has been misused over and over and over. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it just so we can get it out there and be vulnerable and honest. Give to Caesar what Caesar's, okay? Now, I mean, you could be at a circus, right? Like watching kangaroos or something, and your buddy, or those at circuses, I'm not sure, right? My, in, in my mind, that would be an amazing circus, right? The kangaroos. And, and, and your buddy could look over and say, oh, look at the kangaroos. Well, give to Caesar what Caesar's. I mean, it's literally been used in like, where, where times where it just doesn't make any sense. You're, you're at a cardinal game and Pujols hits a home run and your buddy says, well, give to Caesar what Caesar's. It, it, it's just one of those random verses that people don't know when to use. They don't know what it means. And so tonight, with all of the different meanings around this passage, our hope and our prayers that this passage comes to life tonight, that it brings a new perspective, that it brings something new. And my friends, I know that if God shows up and speaks tonight, that each of us, our eyes are going to be open. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. If you're just joining us here tonight, I want to welcome you. It's great to have you here in this family. Uh, I hope that uh, you've been welcomed and hugged and, you know, encouraged so far. We've been traveling through the Gospel of Luke for a good 21 months now. 
we take things uh, really fast here at Matthias. We just, you know, just run right through them. And so, uh, you, you haven't missed a whole lot. There's about 120 sermons or so online. If you'd like to get caught up, feel free, right? Um, but to understand the, the, the place where this passage takes place, we have to understand three pieces of the context. Now, first of all, the overall context of this passage is it's in the Gospel of Luke, written by a doctor to a man named Theophilus, who's a Roman official. And so everything in the Gospel of Luke is trying to make the case to this Roman official that Jesus is the Christ, that it's his kingdom we're waiting on, and that the Roman kingdom sinks underneath the power and the authority of God's kingdom. That's the overall context. The uh, general context of this passage is in the last week of the life of Christ. We've been waiting so long, you know what I mean? 21 months, and now we're finally here, the last week of the life of Christ. Probably Tuesday or Wednesday. So, from this story, in two to three days, Christ will be on a cross. And so, my friends, the tension in this story, the religious, spiritual, emotional tension in this story continues to be heightened. And the specific context of this verse, I think verse 19 gives gives us a great picture. If you're in chapter 20, look at verse 19. It says this, The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Him immediately, but because they knew He had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. So the specific context is that these individuals that are trying to attack Jesus are afraid of the mob. There is a mob that is following Christ around and they're fearful of it. So that's the entire context of this passage. And then we get to the beauty in verse 20. The scripture says this, Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. The first thing we have to understand is who is they? Well, in both the Matthew and the Mark account, the they is the Herodians and the Pharisees. So the Herodians and the Pharisees are behind this plot to catch Jesus in a comment that will ultimately condemn him. Interesting thing about the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Herodians believe that King Herod should be in Israel and that his rule is right and good. The Pharisees think that Herod is a punk and that anyone who follows him is a punk. So you have enemies. The Herodians and the Pharisees are enemies, right? They don't talk. They're not good buddies. They don't hang out. But in this case, they've collaborated together and they're going to go after Jesus. It would be like Cubs fans and Cardinal fans coming, coming together, like wearing half blue, half red, you know, and like cheering, like the, the Cardinal fans cheering for, you know, whoever it is, Zambrano and the Cubs fans, this is almost blasphemous, cheering for, you know, it wouldn't happen, right? Like, it would be, I mean, people would die, just like, it, it, it would be over. But in this case, it's interesting to know that with Christ, the tension is so great, that it brings enemies together to plot against another. It feels like war, doesn't it? There's times in our history, in the world's history, where enemies have come together to make their army, what, bigger and better to go against a specific enemy. And in this case, you have the Herodians and the Pharisees coming together to plot against 
Jesus. Now, it's interesting to note that, that they're afraid of the mob. And so, as pompous and arrogant as these, as these, as these people uh, seem, it's interesting to me that they're hoping to catch him so that they can hand him over to who? The governor, right? It's like they don't want the responsibility. It's so interesting and ironic to me that when Jesus finally does get to one of the governors, Pontius Pilate, what does Pontius do? He washes his hands of responsibility. It's the exact same thing that the Herodians and the Pharisees are trying to do. They're trying to catch him so that they can say, here, he's your problem, he messed up your law, so you take responsibility. It's as if they know there's something deeper here, but they're not willing to admit it. So you tonight, um, the reality is, your journey with uh, church and churchianity and Christianity has been long, arduous, distraught maybe, maybe you have some baggage, and you keep believing somewhere, somehow, that there's something bigger going on, but you're just, you're not willing to admit it. My hope and my prayer is this is that every single one of us in this room tonight, I'm not worried about all the worship services that you've been a part of in the past. I'm not worried about a single worship service that you'll, that you'll be at in the future. I'm worried about right here, right now, in all of our hearts. Is it possible tonight that God could say, there's something bigger going on here, and you better start admitting it. And your eyes better start opening to it. And if not, you will miss the beauty of my plan and miss the beauty of my redemption. So if you're here and you're like, um, I just came with a friend tonight, and I'm like, this is weird, right? He's already said death twice. He's pretty loud. And, you know, no. We're on a journey together to have our eyes open to the reality of the great king. Verse 21 says this. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Uh, let's look back in verse 20, shall we? They sent spies who pretended to be what? Who pretended to be honest. This comment right here to Jesus is like the biggest fluff, like just arrogant, dishonest possible statement you can make. There's no belief in them about this statement. It's completely and wholeheartedly empty flattery. It means nothing. The words don't mean anything. They don't have any weight. It's like this. Um... Trevor and I are in a, in a weightlifting competition. Trevor Locke, you know him, he's a big, he's got big biceps. And we've been in this forever, this, this challenge, like who's the better weightlifter, you know? I'm sure you can tell that I'm a guy who works out often and, uh, you know, my recent bench press is about 600 pounds. But it, empty flattery is a lot like, why are you laughing? Like, what, what you, don't believe, you don't believe that? Like, what's, you know? Yeah, that, I'm saying a bunch of fluff right there, right? Yeah. Empty flattery is like, it's like bench pressing a feather, right? Like anyone can do that, you know? I mean, I hope, right? If you can't, like, let's pray right now, right? I mean, anyone, anyone can put a feather on that bar and just crank it out, right? It's a whole lot different when you put 500 pounds on there. And all of a sudden, it becomes extremely difficult. Like, it's hard. You can barely do it. I mean, most of us couldn't even do that, right? Empty flattery, anyone can do. But friends, words that have weight and significance and meaning are so much better and weightier. And that's the thing that empty flattery doesn't accomplish. Empty flattery has no weight, no significance. They mean nothing. And we all know when a person has empty words, don't we? We can pick it out. If you and I can pick it out, how much greater and better can the one who sees right through us pick it out, my friends? 
I mean, you know, you're like telling your friend this long story, and then you ask them a question, and they answer completely wrong, you know? You, you tell them this long, five-minute, you know, story, you really pour it out of your heart, you're crying, you know? And you're like, so, what do you think? And they're like, I really like pepperoni, you know? I mean, they just, they say something completely random. You're like, are you kidding me? Like, have you been listening? Does that not frustrate anyone else? Well, the thing about anti-flattery is that it just, it breaks the heart of communication. I'm going to ask you three questions tonight. And I want to ask you the first one right now. The three tough questions, the three questions that you will struggle with, that you'll think about, I hope, after tonight's over. The first question is this. How much of your worship, life, prayer, song, Bible reading, is plagued with empty flattery? How much of your words, the songs that you sing, the words that you say to each other, about Christ is plagued with empty flattery. Let me give you some examples of why this is dangerous. I was, um, some of you guys will remember the story. I had this young uh, girlfriend that I really loved. Her name was Amy Bursler. We met when we were seven. She was awesome. Uh, she lived across the street from me. And uh, you, you ever, you remember those, like the first romance that you ever had, right? Like I wrote her poems that were a few words long. It was awesome. I remember being seven years old. Like, I was always the crazy kid, you know. I remember being seven years old, knocking on her door, and, and her dad was a doctor. And I was like, hey, uh, Dr. Bursler, uh, is it cool if I date your daughter? And I, I remember looking, like him looking at me, like, you know, he like bends down, right, like to the eye level, and he's like, uh, Mark, get, you know, don't get me wrong here, but aren't you seven years? You know, I'm like, hey, bro, you gotta do what you gotta do. You know what I'm saying? You gotta do what you gotta do, bro. Anyway, so every night, here, here's what would happen. I was growing up and I'd just, man, uh, Amy Bursler, Amy Bursler. And uh, I, I, I would go out at night, and any single time that I would see her light flip, or her light turn on, on her bedroom, I would go out, and I had this basketball hoop on my, on my, uh, on my court there, or in our driveway, and I would go out and I would shoot hoops. Because I would see her little fingers peering through the windows, like checking me out, you know? L- listen, literally, listen, literally for five years I did this, Right? Any single, I'd be like waiting, I'd be eating dinner, whenever that light, loop, whenever that light turned on, I was like, yeah, buddy, you know? So I would put on my gym shorts, you know, the old school kangaroos, and I would go out, and I, I would just, I would just shoot hoops, man, over and over and over. Well, what I was doing, in essence, and this is a strange way to do it, but I was teaching myself how to shoot a basketball. I was training myself. So when, when we finally moved from the great town of Waverly, Iowa, like, it was weird. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm not too bad at shooting a basketball. And it was all because I was trained by this, you know, this Pavlov dog's light thing with Amy Bursler, you know. In that same town, um, similarly, I was in third grade. My parents did a marvelous thing. There was this, um, there was an experimental class that, that had come to our elementary school. That kind of sounds scary, doesn't it? Like, they prodigy, no, 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 none of that, right? But there was this experimental class that had come out, and it was called cooperative learning. It was in third grade. And my parents thankfully signed me up for this. What happened was is in our third grade class, we had this class, it was with 60 people. 60 people in one classroom. And most of the class was done in small groups. Like, I'd, I'd never heard of this before. And like, we would, we would have to do, you know, things individually. You didn't take group tests, right? But what happened was, is that year, I, I, was, I was trained. I was learning, like, how to work in small groups. And then it would rotate leadership. And so in third grade, I was having to be a leader of, like, I, I was being trained without even knowing it, this great life lesson of what it meant to be in this small setting. Today, I'm driving from my office um, to the high school. 
which that should ask, bring up many questions in your mind, like, why did you drive? It's part of my diet too, right? It's called, if you can drive it, don't walk it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, plus it was, it was at least 82 out today, you know? My, my motto generally is, if it's over 70, don't be outside. I'm just giving you guys lots of life lessons tonight, right? Just write all those down. And, uh, and so I, I'm driving and I have a meeting at the high school and I, I leave the office and I, dr- I literally, I, I, I catch myself about like 30 yards past the turn of the high school. I was headed to my house. Like every time, every day, at the end of the day, when I leave the office and I make a left turn on King's Highway, where do I go every single day? I mean, I turn left and I go to my house. Rarely do I, if ever, do I go to the high school. I've trained myself so much that I just, I just did what I know to do. And I just, I didn't even turn at the high school, my friends. Is it possible that in your experience with church and Christianity, that you've, you've, you've experienced this thing where I see and I learn and therefore I do. I see and I learn and then I just do. I just do it because I see it and I, and I take it in and I learn it and then I just do what everyone else is doing. Different from I'm changed and I experience and then I am. You see the difference? You see, I fear. I fear that much of our empty flattery, my friends, is the cause of the Christian training that has taught each and every one of us to come in and to say the proper word at the proper time without ever really digging into our heart and saying, what does it mean that your light will never fade? What does it mean to say, blessed be the name of the Lord? Have you ever thought about the statement He gives and take away? I know that's a great part of the song, right? It kind of builds and you, you start to feel it. Have you ever thought about the words? You know what you're saying? Is it empty flattery? He gives and takes away. Really? Are you ready for that? Is that your prayer? Because that's what you're singing. You give and take away and still through all that, blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, how many of you have just been trained to be Christians without experiencing this change of the heart? It's empty flattery. It's as if you were a spy. Because Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, what does He say? If you're not with me, you're what? You're against me. And unfortunately, that's been great in our culture. You've been trained to raise your hands or to say the word, never thinking in the depths of your soul, who is this God that I worship? And I guarantee you that when that thought pervades and when that thought enters your soul, then there's no turning back. Because He's good, and He's faithful, and He's gracious. And then, my friends, it's not empty flattery at all. It's a change of your heart that allows you to see God through the lens of Himself. And that, on the first glance, seems strange. But when you see God as He sees Himself, like, come on, when you see Him as He sees Himself, then you see the great, glorious majesty of a great King. At Matthias' lot. We need to start ridding ourselves of the training that has trained us just to do. Just to do. We don't want to get confused with James. It says, don't, don't just be hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. We don't want to get confused. Yes, that's true. But we're doers of the Word when the heart has changed. And we're not doers of the Word when we just see, oh, so that's how you do it over here. Well, I'm just going to do it out of rote discipline. Friends, the question is, how much of your worship, your life, your prayer, your song, is just plagued with empty flattery. There's a massive difference, my friends, when the words are life-changing and when you enter into worship and you say, God, 
I really trust and believe that You're great, that You're good. To these spies, asking a very dishonest question, they, uh, in verse 22 they say this, Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And some of you already are getting excited because you're like, sweet, we're going to talk about not paying taxes tonight. This is going to be awesome, awesome. Now, remember, they're trying to catch him, right? The Pharisees and the Herodians have sent spies trying to what? They're trying to catch Jesus in between some... So this question seems on the surface like a, pers- like a perfect question, doesn't it? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, the word tax, the Greek word there is phoron. And it literally means to give a tribute. Now, the tribute in ancient times was a poll tax that normally was a tax on houses or land. And so what they're asking is, is it right to pay taxes to Rome based upon our housing and our land? Is it right? Now, if he says, no, it's not right, then what happens? No, it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar. Then all of a sudden, this great Roman authority, this great power gets involved because he's just said, nope, not you, but something else, right? If he says yes, what, what, what happens? The people are like, hold on, Jesus. Like, what's your problem? Like, I thought you were about us, the pay and the, the, the peons. I thought you were about the peasants. I thought you were about the poor people. So they think they've got Jesus in a catch-22. Right? Have you guys all heard this? If he says yes, he's done. If he says no, he's done. We've got him. Do you, uh, do you think that the enemy thought that too when Jesus was nailed up to the cross? Do you think he really believed that he had Christ and God in a catch-22 at that moment? Right? If he dies, done. If he lives, done. I've got him. The thing about Jesus that I want to encourage you with is isn't it great that there is no such thing as a catch-22 with our Savior? Isn't it great to know that there is no such thing as Jesus not knowing the perfect, right, awesome answer? Right? So let's keep going here. Verse 23. He saw through their duplicity. In another version of the Bible, it says craftiness. There's a reason why our flattery should never be empty. Because He sees right through it. If you come to worship, and your heart has nothing to do with your worship, right? And it just wrote training. I'm singing because I've been trained. I'm praising because I've been trained. I'm praying because I know how to pray, just like a great Christian because my mama taught me so. He sees right through the duplicity. And that is why you're either for Him or against Him because He sees right to the heart. There's never, ever a question with Christ about whose side you're on. Amen? There's never a question. And so some of you are like, well, I guess that's pretty serious. Yeah, it is. Your life and your heart and what happens with it is extremely serious. He saw right through the duplicity and He said to them, show me a denarii whose portrait and inscription are on it, he asked. Now, put, put up the coin here, Andrew. First, uh, first slide. Now, uh, the Caesar at this time was Tiberius. And this is a coin, it was a, this was a denarii, it was a Roman silver coin that was worth about a day's wage. Now, Jesus asks a very interesting question. He wants to know what? Whose portrait is on it, and what does the inscription say? Well, the uh, next slide. The inscription says this. On the front, it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the... Divine Augustus. I don't care whether you speak Greek or Fremunda or English, whatever you speak, alright? Like, 
Divine means divine. It means that this is a claim of divinity. Okay? So on the coin, Tiberius' claim is son of the divine Augustus. Meaning what? Son of God. Now on the back, it said this. Pontifex uh, Maximus, which some of you get excited just thinking about gladiator at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. And that literally meant high priest. So it's interesting that on this coin that Jesus asks for, we see the, por- the portrait of Tiberius, and the claim is, is that he's the son of God and that he's a high priest. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus is the son of God and called scripturally the high priest? Anyone? Interesting. So he asks for this coin. Now, if you're Jesus and you've come to Jerusalem to die, this would be the moment, my friends, listen, this would be the moment where you could expedite your death. It could be the moment where you just, just cash it all in. He knows he's in Jerusalem to die. He's been building to this moment. He knows that it's coming. And if he wanted to die and expedite it, then he could have went there right here, right now. But he doesn't. Why? Because there's an important teaching right now in this moment. He doesn't want to miss it. He knows that in this moment, there's an important teaching to happen, plus a whole bunch of prophecy has to be fulfilled. So, he's going to teach on it, and this is what he says in verse 25. They reply, Caesar's. And he said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Does anyone else find it interesting that they have a coin? I think it's kind of funny, right? They're trying to trap Jesus. And they're trying to say, hey, should we pay taxes or not? And they whip out the Roman coin, which means what? That they're using it. You know what I mean? They're a Jew using a Roman coin, which means what? That they're adhering to the Roman way of coin. Now, there was also Jewish coins at this point, but clearly they're using the coin of Tiberius. Now, there is a, there's a lot of questions with this passage, isn't there? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what's God's. I've heard people use this passage... Uh, for an anti-war passage. I've, I've heard people use this passage for separation of church and state. I've heard people use this passage for argument after argument after argument. Well, give the Caesar what Caesar's, right? And we should obey the speeding ticket, which, which may be true. Instantly convic- convicting us all, you know what I mean? I always follow the speed limit, you know? Yeah. Now, there's an interesting passage that we need to look at in conjunction with this. Put up on Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, Scripture says this. Flipping the screen now. Andrew, go. Thank you. Yes. Now, verse 1 says this. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Interesting, isn't it? There's no authority except that which God has established. And so what do you instantly think of? Come on. Nazi Germany? Communism? You're like, hold on a second. The problem is, when we begin to dive into these questions, ultimately, what are we talking about? We're talking about the sovereignty of God. Period. We're diving in to the will and the allowance of God. Some may say, how could God ever allow Nazi Germany? And you and I are wrong when we begin to try to dive into that question. But we're right when we say, we don't know. But God has a plan to bring Himself glory. And I don't understand, 
I don't understand a tsunami or 9-11 or Nazi Germany, but I do understand this, that God is about His glory. And He says here that no authority except that which God, no authority has been created except that which God has established. You guys will remember a little conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. You guys remember the conversation? He says, hey, like, what, what's your whole kingdom about? Like, like, how do we interact here? And what does Jesus tell Pontius? My kingdom is not, is not of this world. And your kingdom, you're only given power because it's been allowed to you. You are a pawn, Pontius, that is fulfilling the great sovereign plan of God. And we see this great image of Pontius being used by God to accomplish the death of a Savior. And now, all of a sudden, our mind starts to expand about the fact that God is in control over everything. And so you and I don't have to sit around and question we don't have to sit around in our, in our closets and wonder, God, like, why would you ever do that? I'm not sure, but to the glory of yourself. Why, do, why was Satan kept alive for the glory of himself so he could step on the heel, the head of the serpent, and say, I do reign? Verse 2 says this, Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Speeding tickets? Much. You know? Yeah. Like this, this flat out says, uh, any of you guys ever stolen an MP3 before? Have you ever heard of an MP3, right? An iPod, the songs, they go on there, you know? There are certain laws of the land that the scripture is clear about that were to, verse 3, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. Next slide. This passage continues on. For he is God's servant to do you Good. Which poses the next question, right? What about when governments do you bad? What about when governments go wrong? What about when governments don't do what God's will is? But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He's talking about the government here. Does not hold the sword for nothing. There's a lot of of weight to this passage. He is God's servant an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If, you, uh, if revenue, then revenue. If respect, if respect. If honor, then honor. A lot of weight here to this passage, Amen. Like, there's a lot of questions going on in your mind. So what does this mean? Like, what, what ultimately is he saying when he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's? What is ultimately of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13? Talk about when, when it says, submit to the authorities in the land. What he's saying in this passage is, is if we don't submit, that it's going to be utter chaos. And that he, God, has set up governments. That he's allowed the governmental system to happen. To better organize and your question should be, so what about when it doesn't? Many of you guys know that we're connected to this uh, communist country called Laos. We uh, have partnered with an unreached people group in Laos. Communists, they believe Christianity is illegal. They believe that you can't be a Christian and, and live there. There was a Christian family a few months ago that was killed in Laos. Many of you guys know that two years ago we traveled to Laos and we got to the border with Bibles in our bag. And what do we do? We broke the law. We crossed the line of this communist country, Laos, with Bibles in our bag, breaking the law of Laos. Completely throwing the law out of, out of the window, and in doing so, 
putting ourselves on the chopping block for potential harm. So the question at this point is, was that wrong or right, right? The question you should be thinking of, hold on a second, like, so what does that mean? Like, should we, does that mean we don't do that? Well, look back into Luke. Jesus says this, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. You see, any time I've ever heard this passage quoted, which part did they quote? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Well, hey, uh, you know, I got to speak. You know, we'll give to Caesar what's Caesar's. We got, we got to pay tax. We got to, we'll give to Caesar what's Caesar's. No one ever finishes the verse. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. That means that Romans 13 and Luke 13 or Luke 20 and 1 Peter 2 all say that we're to submit to the authorities of the land, except when that authority goes against the sovereign plan of God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And when when these two things collide, like Revelation talks about that they will, if you guys ever studied Revelation and done any research about the mark of the beast, that's a governmental issued mark. And so when those two things do not coexist and your government is asking you to do things that go against the powerful Word of God, then guess what you do? You stand in opposition with the Word as your guide and no law of man. Are you with me? Now that is where it gets difficult. And that is where we see rebellion. That's where we see groups of people all throughout history going up against government and and going up and sometimes in a bloody battles. And there's a lot of questions there and we're not going to answer every single one of them tonight. But what we are going to say is that Jesus makes it clear that we're to give to Caesar what Caesar's. Put that coin back up. Put that coin back up. Coin, go. Slow on the trigger tonight, Andrew. Minus 10 points for you. Okay. Now, you see this? Whose inscription is it on it? Whose inscription? Tiberius. So, what Jesus is saying is, it's a coin. Give it to him. It has no worth. In the scheme of things, this is a day's wage on the earth, which will fall away. So you know what? Give that to Caesar. Give that piece of coin to that pompous Caesar, and everyone will be happy. And then he says, and give to me What's mine? Scripture says that we're, that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that we're literally inscripted by the mark of Christ. That He does a work in us so much so that we're changed and different. Is it possible that this same question that He asks of these, of these five, hey, g- give me a coin. Is it possible that that same question will be asked when we meet our Father? Hey, whose inscription is on it? The blood of Christ, the Son of God, the High Priest. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's because it will fall away. And give to God what's God's because it is eternal and about a different and bigger and better kingdom. Now, my second question for the night is this. Whose rule and reign are you better at following? Caesar's or God's? Let me explain what I mean. Some of you guys are amazing workers. You're amazing. You go to work every day. You're a hard worker. 
40, 40 hours a week. Some of you guys, amazing college students. Some of you, not so much, but some of you, amazing college students. You study, you do homework, you know. You look on YouTube for research, you know. I mean, you, you, spend, you spend a lot of time studying. That same husband who feels like he's giving to Caesar what Caesar's, working in a land that calls him to work. Why? Because that's in America how you make money. So in a sense, it's giving to Caesar what Caesar. I have to work to make money. Yeah, it goes back to my curse in Genesis, but that's part of the plan. And then you come home. And then you short your wife. You short your kids. You watch TV all night and wait on them to give you whatever you need and whatever is at your beck and call. That is not giving to Caesar what's Caesar's and God what's God's. That's doing a really good job at pleasing the things of this flesh so that you can grow your resources, so that you can live in a nice house and make sure that your wife is happy. But then you come home and you lazily lead your wife and you don't spend any time just loving on your kids. And and fellas, I'm talking about it consistently. Because it feels great to have that one day out of the week, doesn't it? Where you feel like you just did a good job. Man, today this work was great. And so I came home and I made my wife dinner and I brought her, you know, a flower. Even though I picked it off the side of the road, she still thinks it's cool, you know. And I came and I hugged my little girl and I spent some time with her. Let me tell you this. Scripture is clear about what we're to give to him. And what we're to give to our wife. And what we're to give to our kids. And what we're to give to the relationships that surround us all day long. Scripture is clear that we are constantly to be self-sacrificing. Some of you are doing an amazing job at studying, school. Doing a great job at giving this. Some of you pay your taxes on time, right? Some of you even do them. You know, on, on, online. You're so savvy with the internet. that You get online and you pay your taxes. But then when it comes to the things of the Scripture, you're like, well, I give to Caesar what Caesar's. Isn't that great? Friends, who is ruling and reigning in your life? Can I just ask you, is it America? Honestly, is it America? A culture that has tried to plague and just grip Christianity in its hands. When will a Christian culture start defining American culture and not the other way around? And it will happen when a bunch of people say, we need to give to God what's God's, and that's everything we are. And underneath of that is giving the government a penny. Giving the government what's inscripted on them. Giving good old Abe Lincoln a little thing that's on there. There's a lot of questions of give to Caesar what Caesar and give to God's what God. But the overarching answer in the scripture is that his sovereign plan, his sovereign rule is the thing that needs to pervade our life always. So the question is, what is ruling and reigning in your life? America? Or a God who says, give me everything. Not because that's what you owe me, but because that's what I'm deserved. Amen? Now, this interaction isn't over. Now look at this. Uh, In verse 26. They were unable to trap him and what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became what? They became silent. Jesus always has the answers, my friends. There's a little passage in the Bible that I've been studying a lot recently. Ask and it'll be given you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. He always has the answers. And the things that you and I must come to is that it's not always on our plan or our timing or the exact picture that we want. But He always has the right answers. And in this case, He blows them away. 
He does something completely unexpected. And don't you love that about Christ? Just when it looks like He's in a pickle, just when it looks like that there's nowhere to go, He says, hey, uh, can I have a coin? And then He just flips it on their head and they're left silent, astonished. And they were what? Spies. Church, I don't think we're left silent and astonished enough. Spies against Christ were left silent and astonished. And I don't feel like that we're left silent and astonished enough. We've got a lot to say. We've got a lot to communicate. We've got a lot to brag about. The books we're reading and the things we're doing and the great servant heart that we have. When will God render you silent in a great awe of Him? And an astonishment. I can't, be- I can't believe you did that. I can't believe who you are as God. I can't believe what you're doing in my life. And I'm rendered silent on my face in awe of you. If spies are doing that, then don't you think the church should be doing that, what, twice, three, four, five, how many times more? We've got a lot to say, don't we, church? We've got a lot to say. What if the culture in America started seeing us more silently astonished of a great God, and then when they're like, what's your deal? You're, You're just, I just, I can't, sometimes I can't even speak because of what he's done. I don't have the right words to frame around it. I don't have the right diagram and etch-a-sketch to be able to show you. All I know is, is that he's amazing and I sit in astonishment of what he's done. Now, I'm not saying we're all to just go to the corner now, right? Oh, so that gives us reason now to not evangelize. Sweet, you know, you're like taking notes. Mark said, don't ever say anything, you know? And I'm going to act like, I'm, no, no, no. I'm just saying, when petty words and empty flattery aren't the cry of our heart anymore, we start to see God a whole lot clearer. So my question for you guys is this. My third question is this. Is the silence, the still small voice, allowing your communion with Christ to be so connected that at moments that you can never describe that you just sit in astonishment? And if not, I fear that we have a big problem in the church. Tonight's call is to understand that in this moment, in the great moment of tension in this passage, we see Jesus say, give the government a coin and give me everything. Not because it's going to earn you salvation, but because of the great God that I am and the great faithfulness that I have, I deserve your eternal praise. And so a rightful servant will never be attracted to empty flattery because they understand that those words are like bench-pressing a feather. They have no weight to them. So friends, can we together kick the empty flattery aside? Can we together say, Oh God, we want You to have everything that we are. We don't want to get confused about who it is that we're following, culture or You. And some of you here tonight are confused. You're confused. And then at the end of all of it, would we be so astonished at the fact that He has had grace on even us that we would sit in just broken astonishment and say, how, how could you have grace on me? We're going to have a chance to worship here tonight. To sing. To shout. Will the empty flattery fade 
into true trust of a great living God. Let's pray for it, amen? All we can do is pray. I want you guys to grab a hand of someone that's next to you and we're going to pray. Father, um, I ask right now that the ways that we have put um, America in front of you or the dollar or the coin or a governmental system ahead of you, I pray, God, that you'll break us of that. I pray, God, that you'll help us to understand that there will be times when our government will go against your Scripture and in those times that we have a bigger call to stand for, and that's your name. And I pray, God, that you'll give us strength to do that. I pray, God, that if it's in America, you'll give us strength. If it's in the country of Laos, you'll give us strength. God, I pray that you'll empower us to stand against the culture and to stand for you, God. I pray that you'll help us to stand firm in our faith, unwavering, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that the fear will subside. I pray, Father, that no longer will we stand in judgment of a culture, but rather worry about the judgment that comes from you. And, Father, I pray right now that you'll increase our faith, that the words that we sing, the Bible that we read, the prayer that we pray, that none of it any longer will just be empty words that have no weight. I pray that you'll break us of the training that's been bad for us. And that you'll renew the idea that you've changed our hearts, you've called us back to you, and you've called us to go and to show our light to the world. God, please forgive us for our empty flattery. And now, as we sing about you and your payment, will you hear our cries? Let's stand together.